Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's Tuesday. It feels like Friday. I don't know why it feels like Friday, but it's Tuesday. Uh, and uh, we're happy to welcome back uh, one of our regular guests, David Priest, the Chief Operating Officer of Lawfare. So uh, thanks for joining us. I appreciate it, David. I'm glad to be back. Thanks. You know, someday I would like to have a podcast that is not focused on the craziest thing that happened <laughs> that day, but this won't be this podcast. And I'm, 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 I'm sorry. I mean, I, it's, I'm, I'm making a list of things that we have to talk about, and it's one crazy thing after another. We'll get to the Mario Cuomo $5 million book deal, um, which uh, my, my, my comment was very, very brief in my newsletter this morning. I indulged my inner 12-year-old and just had the the vomit emoji. And I, I actually was wrestling with myself. Should I put the vomit emoji in? Because that would really be a juvenile response to it. But but no, it's 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 deeply felt and sincere that Mario Cuomo would get a five million dollar book. Alec, we'll come back to that a little bit later. Um and then of course we have uh Kevin McCarthy, uh the Republican leader of the House, officially coming out against a January sixth commission, bipartisan commission which means that he is throwing his own negotiator, uh, Representative John Katko, under the bus. I want to talk about that. But, David, can we start with talking about what's happening in Maricopa County, Arizona? Because, I mean, yeah, really, wow. You know, I – The way this is developing, Charlie, it's – to me, it's it's a really interesting parallel to what happened in Georgia with the uh, counting of the ballots, the recount, Raffensperger, and all of that. There's there's a parallel here. The fact – that it's just more absurd and and more comical and more extreme on basically every aspect of it does make me wonder about if it's Georgia to Maricopa County, what's the next one? And, and well, will we be it. able to bear the weight of the next one? Okay, so I'm trying not to be too dark and you can talk me down on this because my, my Morning Shots newsletter uh, headline is Maricopa County is our future. Think of it as a rehearsal for 2024. And so the crazy and comical aspect of it um, doesn't take away the fact that this is like a foreshadowing. I mean, look, even by the standards of crazy set by the Kelly Ward led Republican Party in Arizona, this bizarre audit is I, I describe it as I think the technical term is bat guano with hair on it. I mean, you have the cyber ninjas, the searches for bamboo because they think that the ballots were were shipped in from China. But what's interesting is uh, yesterday you had a group of Republicans who actually run the elections there. These are grown up, responsible Republicans who actually had enough. The, the Maricopa County Board of Supervisors is dominated by Republicans. And they held a press conference. Let me just play a little bit of audio of this. This is uh, Maricopa County Supervisor Bill Gates, not the other Bill Gates. Uh, he is a Republican. This is what he said. Maricopa County, we don't do what's easy. We do what's right. We've done that for the last six months. Four out of the five members of the Board of Supervisors are Republicans. Four. We recognize, and I anticipate you're going to ask questions about this, that a large percentage of Republicans believe that the election was stolen in 2020 uh, and that, you know, Donald Trump actually won. I want to be clear that I uh, believe that Joe Biden won the election. 
All right. And the reason that I feel confident in saying that, particularly in Maricopa County, is that we overturned every stone. And we have professionals, both with the early voting and the election day voting. They did everything right. We asked the difficult questions. All right. And we certified the election back in November. But now it's time to say enough is enough. It is time to push back on the big lie. We must do this. We must do this as a member of the Republican Party. We must do this as a member of the Board of Supervisors. We need to do this as a country. Otherwise, we are not going to be able to move forward and have an election in 2022 that we can all believe the results, whatever they may be. It is time to push back on the big lie. Now, they also wrote a letter where they referred to this audit as a sham and a con uh, board members said the audit had been inept, promoted falsehoods, defamed the public servants who ran the fall election. They said the process is a spectacle that is harming all of us. Remember, these are Republicans. They're asking the Republican state Senate to to basically like, but you just back off. It's time to make a choice to defend the Constitution and the Republic they wrote. We stand united together. And again, the four out of five of the supervisors are Republicans. We stand united together to defend the Constitution and the Republic in our opposition to the big lie. We ask everyone to join us in standing for the truth. Okay, so David Priest, that's that's kind of the good news part of it. Yeah, I I'm mixed on this one. I I'm not as negative as you are about uh, what this means for the the future necessarily because of what the board did. But there there is a problem in what the board did and was specifically (laughs) in what Bill Gates, this Bill Gates, uh, said in the quote that we played, which is, he said, I believe that Joe Biden won the election. This is not a matter of belief. This is, this is, belief is a thing for faith or for ideology. He's talking about fact. And by using the language of I believe this, it leaves open the idea of different people can believe different things. We respect people who have different beliefs. That's a core Mm. American trait. By using that very language, he's undermining the very strong point that the board made, which is this is not a matter of interpretation. This is not a matter of belief. This is not a matter of looking at the evidence and examining it in a slightly different light and getting a different result. This is a matter of fact. And in their 14-page letter, I think it was, with something like 17 or 18 pages of documentation, it was absolutely clear. There were no voter files deleted before servers were turned over to the Senate. There were no broken seals on ballot bags that were outside of standard operating procedures that happen in every election. There was no missing ballot pink slip issue. All of these things were completely and thoroughly debunked, leaving no room for belief that Joe Biden won in this election. Um, So I'm on the one hand, extremely pleased that all five members of the Board of Supervisors, regardless of party, are standing by the truth and calling this out for the batshit crazy thing that it is. And I am disappointed that they are still leaving that the room to disagree because they call it a belief when it is far from a belief. It is the truth. All right. This is why I am more negative than you on, on, on all of this. That, and I do think that it is, it is good 
that responsible Republicans are pushing back. I mean, I, I think it was, yes, with, with your caveats, I think it was positive that they stood up. If, if there's ever going to be uh, any, you know, any serious effort to correct the big lie or to defy the big lie, it's got to come from Republicans. So that, mm-hmm. that's a good thing. But, and here's my big but here. Um, these folks are a tiny minority in the Republican Party these days. And and, and I think w- really what is happening in, in Maricopa County is, is a warning because you mentioned that all of these things have been debunked. There's no evidence whatsoever that any of the, uh, you know, information had been deleted. That is a flat out false, untrue lie. And yet, you know where it came from? It's being pushed by Donald Trump and it's being amplified by OAN. And so this scam audit, is important to the former guy. And if it's important to the former guy, you know that it will be picked up by the base. And outside of Arizona, how many Republicans around the country are saying, this is wrong, this is dangerous? Elise Stefanik was just named the number three House Republican um, the day, two days after she goes on Steve freaking Bannon's show to say that she totally supports this completely ridiculous audit. So, you know, Republicans could have taken an off ramp here, but they're double down. Let me tell you why I'm also, you know, getting a darker view of all of this, why there's going to be there will be no bursts of rationality. Um, new CBS poll, 80 percent of Republicans who'd heard about the vote agree with Liz Cheney's removal. Um, the base overwhelmingly not only supports Trump, they want other Republicans to emulate Trump, to model themselves on Donald Trump. And I'm sorry to be so depressing. So the GOP should follow Trump's example on um, economic issues, 89%. 88% say that the GOP should follow Trump's example on immigration. 80% say the GOP should follow Trump's example on leadership. 77% think that the GOP should follow Trump's example on how to treat the media. So my gut sense here is that as bad as this is, as comical and as ridiculous as this is, the next time around, the Republican base is not just going to tolerate an attempt to overturn an election. They will be prepped to demand it. They will demand that any Republican anywhere uh, go along with attempts to overturn the election. And even though we dodged a bullet in Georgia and Michigan and Arizona this time, those folks, I don't think they're going to be around in 2024. Okay, talk me off the ledge, please. Um, please. I'm not please. sure I can do that. Off the ledge. I may be able to keep you from <laughs> – I may be able to keep you from uh, jumping over. Maybe you'll just okay. teeter okay. on the edge for okay. Okay. perpetuity. I, so I, here's my take. For a long time. Um, yeah. I'm not sure I disagree with any of that. But there is a minority still within the Republican Party that when it comes down to it, actually makes the right call. And yes, we're paying attention to Elise Stefanik because she went on the Steve Bannon show. That That's great in terms of the public discourse, in terms of the visibility. Yes, I'm not going to deny that's a bad sign for rationality and, and truth within the Republican Party. However, when it came down to it in Georgia, you had some of that minority stand up and they were the people in actual positions to do things like certify elections. In Maricopa County, you don't have the perhaps majority of the party um, out there doing You have the people who are in the positions of the board of supervisors who are doing the right thing. So yes, you may have a majority in polls saying that they want this, but and they're watching Elise Stefanik repeat those same things on the Steve Bannon show. Got it. They're doing that. 
But when it comes down to it, you are having some institutions hold, even at the state and local level, which has been disturbing in many places because of the purging that has been happening. Will that purge now pick up such that mm-hmm. such that these people are no longer in those positions? That's a realistic fear, is that what happens is every single person who does something like this is you know, ejected from the party, no longer is in such a position. But doing so actually removes a pretty healthy chunk, not a majority, but a pretty healthy chunk of the state and local apparatus and undermines the party's ability to to keep hold of what it has. So I'm going to put that slightly positive spin on it, which is some institutions have held even after the election, even after January 6th, even after they're looking at the polls and seeing the same things you are in terms of what the majority of their partisans want, they are still doing the courageous thing, standing up and calling out the emperor for having no clothes. So you know what the good news and the bad news about the closet I have in my office is? Hmm. The, the, the bad news is it's really small. It's a really small closet. It's hard to keep a lot I, of I, bodies I, in a small I, closet, Charlie. Well, okay. So that's that's the bad news. It's really, really small. The good news is it's still big enough uh, to have a convention of all of the principled Republicans in the country. <laughs> I'm sorry. Cheap shot. I just Ooh. felt like – okay, speaking of which, this morning. Um, I'm going to say as expected, uh, not everybody goes along with that, but uh, that uh, Kevin McCarthy, uh, Republican leader, has come out against legislation uh, to create a bipartisan January 6th commission. This uh, legislation is expected to be voted on tomorrow. It was negotiated on a bipartisan basis. John Katko signed off on it. There have been a lot of reports that Kevin McCarthy was part of the negotiations, that he put his seal of approval on it, or at least he had input into it. Uh, and uh, today he's coming out against it. So, you know, on one level, it's kind of, uh, you know, I, I think it's inevitable that he's he, he doesn't want to be subpoenaed. But under this piece of legislation, the Republicans would have as much power as the Democrats. If there is no commission and the hearings are conducted by congressional committees, they'll be controlled by Democrats. So in some ways, Kevin McCarthy has left uh, has left Republicans in a worse position by coming out against legislation. So your, your, your take, uh, what do you think? Why do you think yeah. Kevin McCarthy decided to come out against this? Similar take here. I mean- McCarthy, and he wasn't alone. There were there were other Republicans in leadership and uh, vocal Republicans who didn't endorse uh, the agreement. But Katko had done this agreement, you know, on behalf of Republican interests. He was basically yeah. negotiating, came up with this, and actually, if I understand it right, he gave McCarthy and and the leadership much of what they'd actually wanted. They got an even number of Democrats and Republicans. They got both sides, the ability to sign off on subpoenas. Um, this was a pretty good negotiation, I think. And then McCarthy says, well, I'm not going to support it anyway. Um, I can go two directions on this. One is the traditional thing that you and I and most of the people here have been saying for a long time, which is just the increasing tribalism. And if somebody else is for it, I'm against it because I have an R after my name. That's not new, but it is more intense. That's possible. I'm also open to the more conspiratorial thinking here, which is not my bent, but in this case I am, which is what was McCarthy's role in the January 6th attack? Um, Remember, he had that phone call with Trump while it was happening. And 
there's going to have to be a decision in this commission of how far do they go into what happened in that phone call. Because listen, if nothing else is addressed in this commission, even if they choose not to look at the deep causes of the January 6th insurrection, and they choose not to look at the wider issues, they're going to have to look at those particular hours. That is the bare minimum they're going to do. Well, are they going to subpoena McCarthy? Are they are they going to actually yeah, force him to, to talk in detail about things he has not been willing to talk about? And if he yeah, won't, and if he's opposing to. the very commission because of that, um, that tells us something about what actually happened. Yeah, I just I don't think that's conspiratorial thinking. I I think that's a, that's a straight up uh, analysis of the fact that Kevin McCarthy is right in the middle of this. Uh, I think there's a lot of reasons to believe that he does not want to be subpoenaed and have to testify under oath about the, these conversations, especially since he has been uh, revising the history and the versions of of what he heard. He he you know may still have some lingering concern about lying under oath. He'll probably get over it at some point. But yeah, I and I, so I think he's he's willing to take the political hit of looking like he's protecting himself and covering it up. But I, I guess you know part of this is is obvious. I, I think with these guys, if if you if you try to be too subtle, you you you're, you're wasting your time because everything is out in the open. So yes, on one level, uh, these hearings will go on. There will be there will be congressional hearings, and they will take testimony. But it makes it easier for Kevin McCarthy and the Trumpists to discredit and ignore all of those findings, say that they're simply partisan. It makes it easier to do that than it would have been with a bipartisan commission. So the fact is the Republicans are not interested in finding the truth. They are not interested in highlighting this. They're not interested in taking this seriously. If they were, they wouldn't have fired Liz Cheney last week. So there's no way that on one week you you say that Liz Cheney needs to shut up about all of this because we can, we need to move on and then the next week vote for a commission that will take it seriously. So Kevin McCarthy in a sense has been quite consistent. Consistent in his, you know, his smallness but but consistent in the strategy that we've seen play out. The the gamble that McCarthy is taking and I'm and I'm not sure it's an it's a, a long shot here, but the gamble he's taking is that there won't be sufficient voter anger, particularly among Republicans, but voter anger overall about um, a suboptimal commission or about no commission at all, um, as there will be against continued manipulation of the border policy and immigration. I think he's. I think that's his fundamental calculation: yeah. is he's got a, a rough balancing act. As speaker now, he he realizes where the party is. Well, he's he realizes not quite speaker that yet. Yeah. He can't go full. Yeah, good point. Yeah, yeah, he he realizes <laughs> that as as party leader and speaker wannabe, um, that he he can't he can't repeat what he had said earlier, which is that you know nobody believes that the election uh, was rigged. Well, sorry, um, people do, and he's not going to be able to keep that line if he wants to keep the the Trumpian forces if not behind him, at least uh, not opposed to him. But he needs a distraction. And I think he's he's simply got a political calculation of, you know what, January 6th has already faded from some people's minds. Uh, the polls are showing that the Republican base doesn't need it investigated. Therefore, I can hold out long enough that I can just shift attention back to the border. And that will be the bright, shiny object. And that's what we'll need to win 
the midterm elections. Well, uh, yeah, and I, I think I think you're right there. Um, he he is calculating, and he's probably right about this. And I'm sorry to say this that that the Republicans are going to take back control of of the House of Representatives, no matter what he does. What's interesting to me, though, is that. In general, if you want to bury something, if you want people not to pay attention to it, you create a commission. If you really, really want to bury something, you, mm-hmm. you create a bipartisan blue ribbon commission. By taking this particular step, he's guaranteed that this will dominate the news cycle the way the purge of Liz Cheney dominated the last I'm week's news cycle. I'm disagree with you there, Charlie. Okay, um, right. that, that is the thinking, certainly, that I grew up with. And there were many, many commissions uh, that operated that way. But think about the most prominent commissions in the last 20 years. You've had the 9-11 Commission and you had the what became known as the WMD Commission, the Iraq Commission. Both of those uh, were not only headline news while they were doing their operations, but when the reports were released, they were widely read. In the case of the 9-11 Commission report, it actually won a book award or was nominated for a book award. And both of them prompted significant changes to in, in their domain national security, the the very creation of everything from Department of Homeland Security to the National Counterterrorism Center to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, the shifting of responsibility for the president's daily brief, uh, a whole lot of things happened because of these commissions. Yeah. And those are the commissions that are probably on the mind of, um, you know, somebody like, Mc- you know what, it these commissions aren't a way to bury ideas and to get things um, un- undone. I think, in fact, the more recent examples show that the commissions actually can do a lot, and McCarthy is a little bit scared of that. Okay, I, that's that's a fair point. Uh, that's a fair point, and I and I, I stand corrected on all that. You make another interesting uh, point, though, when you talk about the dance that Kevin McCarthy is doing. You know, does he say that the election was stolen? Does he say that no one's saying what the election was stolen? And he's doing this two-step. Um, and you know, my, I think it's going to be interesting to see whether he can maintain it for another. Uh, 18 months, because I think it's very possible that he could sell himself, you know, basically torch his I- any reputation that he, you know, remotely has. Uh, he'll torture it and it still won't be enough. And even if the Republicans win the majority, that they'll throw him under, they'll throw him under the bus as well, because this is a very, very difficult dance. Um, right. And we, we talked about it on the podcast yesterday. On the one hand, you have Republicans like Lee Stefanik saying, our leader is President Trump, not former President Trump. Our leader is President Trump. We follow his lead. On the other hand, you have people like Dan Crenshaw saying, yes, we need to move on. We're really not paying attention to the crazy. So here you have this, you know, the, the Mad King down in the Orange Versailles on a daily basis putting out absolutely insane shit mm-hmm. and that they want to pretend like they're ignoring while they're embracing him. That's a very difficult dance for them to maintain over a long period of time. But maybe, you know, maybe, you know, David, we're back to nothing matters. Nothing well, matters. You know, I don't know. I, and this is hard to project because there are way too many variables in the next 18 months, but I'll put out there that I think if the, if the Republicans do take the House, the dynamics that would lead that to happen and this you know, precarious balance that McCarthy would have to keep make it just as likely as not that he will not be the speaker if the Republicans win, that he will have tried to play the balance too tightly. He will have fallen off the tightrope and you'll see Republican whip Steve Scalise or at yep, least yep. Stefanik yep. being the speaker if the Republican wins. I'll put that out there. 
I think it. I think it's completely. It's completely possible. Um, just briefly, because we talked about it a little bit yesterday, that this Axios story about the final days of the Trump administration ordering uh, the Department of Justice to withdraw troops from everywhere and the ways that they kind of push back. I guess I wanted to get your take on it because there there's so many you know aspects to this, right. including the fact that we're very lucky that Donald Trump was as inept and lazy as he was. But there's a problem when the military refuses to follow a lawful order of the president, even if it's stupid. So I, I, I was debating whether to ask you about, so what yeah. do you do with a stupid but lawful order or a lawful but stupid order? Because this is the dilemma, right? You want the grownups to do the right thing. On the other hand, there are circumstances where you go, ooh, that's kind of cringeworthy. Yeah. Um, to answer your question, what do you do with a stupid but lawful yes. order? You follow it. Um, and that is disturbing. And that's not something we like to hear. But otherwise, you have a very slippery slope to chaos, subversion, anarchy, however you want to put it. There's a real ethical landmine to undermining a president from within. Even if you have good intentions, um, that is a, a minefield that should not be casually traversed because you have a system and we have a system for a variety of reasons we won't get into all the details on, but we have a system in which we have a commander in chief who essentially has the ability to pull troops as needed to have major control over the military and foreign policy mediated in some cases by congressional oversight and of course by congressional authorizations and funding. But as a commander in chief role, we, we have a whole bunch of power vested in the person of the president. Um, if there's an actual illegal or unethical presidential order, it cannot be executed. That's it. And there is a path that people can follow in such a case. Um, you don't do it. You argue as hard as you can against the president. Sir, you can't do this. This is illegal or this actually violates all of our ethics. And if the president doesn't change his mind, you resign and you go public and say exactly what's happening so the people can put pressure on it. If, on the other hand, he does something that you think is galactically stupid, but it is not fundamentally and completely unethical, that is, there, there is not a one-sided ethical calculation or there's not an illegal determination, um, you can still do all the arguing you want. That's called good policy debate. That's called giving the president good advice. But if the president does it anyway, you salute and say, yes, sir. Now, for me, what this story indicated was something even more interesting is you had, apparently, military commanders doing what has happened for hundreds of years, which is slow rolling a decision that they disagree with. I'm saying, well, we need to study that. And well, we're not sure there's strategic consensus on this, even though it was pretty clear what the president wanted. That's part of the game. And it's a matter of the president deciding, if I say something, do I give them 12 hours to execute it or 12 days? And if I see that it's not being followed, are they giving me legitimate reasons or not? That's up to the president to decide. But what this story reports is that the president essentially went around that and said, I'm going to sign something that apparently the staff secretary of the National Security Council, the National Security Advisor himself, have not seen to try to get all these troops out of all these places. That is weird. That, that goes outside the, the chain of command the way we've established it, but it does not go outside the formal chain of command of the president as commander in chief telling troops to come home. 
that is perfectly fine. It's something we're not used to, and it seems wrong because it's outside the system, but that is our system. So for everybody in that position, you know, you do your best to influence good policymaking, and to the extent you can, you stomach the policies you don't like, but if you can't, you quit and you tell the world exactly why. And that wasn't happening at the time. That's only coming out now in May instead of when it was happening. And I'm a little bit surprised by that. Yeah, it, it is. And um, it, on a, just on a political basis, though, it, it's just a reminder about how dangerous a, another term for this guy might be. So we, we, we've gone through this far into the, the podcast without actually mentioning the man who is the current president of the United States. And I'm sorry about that. Uh, Joe <laughs> Biden did win the election. He is the president of the United States. And you're the uh, presidential daily brief guy. And so I, I just have to ask you ab about this because we're far enough into the administration to kind of get a feel for all the different ways that this president is uh, different from the, 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 the former guy. Sure. We've had some you know headlines about the president's intelligence briefings and you know, uh, and, you know, and, and you know, of course, uh, you know, Trump's handling of all of that. So uh, what do we know about how B Biden is handling this? Because it, it does strike me that uh, in, in contrast to the Trump era, there are very few leaks coming from this administration. Right. So give me your thoughts about this. Yeah, and, and I'll hit both fronts on the, the president's daily brief itself and intelligence to the president. What's remarkable is just how institutional Biden is being about it. Uh, having looked at the, all the presidents who have had uh, modern intelligence provided to them, the norm is that the president every day reads the president's daily brief. Uh, and sometimes presidents have a briefer from the intelligence community who come with the brief and actually talk through it and answer questions. Um, that has not been the dominant case. Most presidents just read it and talk about it with their advisors. But several presidents, especially more recent ones, have had briefers, uh, if not every day, certainly frequently. Um, if you look at Joe Biden's official schedule every working day, he starts with the president's daily brief and having a session, presumably with a briefer coming in. When Vice President Harris is in town, they do it together. This is remarkable. And it's remarkable because of the contrast with the last administration, when reporting suggested that the president did not read the president's daily brief regularly, uh, and suggest that he only took briefings maybe a couple of times a week on average, which was not that different from President Obama. Of course, the difference was Obama read the book religiously uh, every day, even if he was not getting formally briefed on it. Um, and Reporting suggested in the last few months of the Trump administration, he was not taking those briefings at all. So the fact that Biden and Harris are both reading this document, digesting it, and taking briefings on it is a good sign. Intelligence is informing policy in a more robust way at that level than it appears happened before. But the fact is, we're not hearing about what they're doing with it. And that's good news. And it relates right. to your second point, which is, we do not have a leak-proof administration. There is no such thing. But other than some authorized disclosures, and you can tell those sometimes by the way the sourcing is, is written, we are not getting the backstabbing, people reporting on each other, who's in and out within the inner circle kinds of things at anywhere near the level, not only of the Trump administration, but of almost any other modern administration. This is an incredibly tight ship 
that is not seeing that kind of backstabbing, will it happen? Most administrations end up having a cycle or two of considerable leaks, even on issues relating to national security decision making. But to this to this point, Charlie, it's been remarkable to me how few leaks we've had and how little we know about things that we have grown accustomed to learning about through reporting. No, it is that that is positive. And a lot of the times it's what you don't hear that is the most important. Okay, so I, I just want to move on to a couple of other things that are that are out there. Um and I obviously will devote a lot more time on you know in on future podcasts to this question, but it, it certainly is one of the biggest stories of the day. The Supreme Court has agreed to hear the Mississippi abortion case, um, which uh, tees up the possibility of overturning Roe versus Wade now that you have a 6-3 conservative majority on the court. And uh, I think that we're, we're, we're in for now a year, a full year of speculation about how the justices are going to vote. But one, one of this sort of almost a I don't know, maybe a kind of a, a, a drive-by thought that I had. I was listening to uh, some of the commentary on this, and uh, it, it is interesting how many people on the right, um, you know, have been pushing for Roe versus Wade to be overturned for decades. And I wonder whether or not the dog really wants to catch the car. I, I just, I kind of wonder about that. The other, the other thing that's interesting is, of course, all of this rhetoric about uh, vaccines. You know, my body, my choice. I, I should have had the the sound bites from Tucker Carlson. I'll do it on maybe tomorrow's podcast. Mm -hmm. You know, my body, my choice. You know, it's people's you know most sacred um, you know right to to not have the government dictate what they should do. This should be between a doctor, of course. The conservatives who were making that argument were trolling pro-choice liberals. They weren't trying to make an argument. They weren't trying to establish a, a principle. Uh, and this is what happens in our current age where trolling replaces argumentation. So, mm -hmm. this, you know, get ready for a lot of bad faith debate between <laughs> now and when this decision comes down, which, by the way, apparently will come down in the middle of the 2022 midterm election fight. So God yep. knows how that's going to play. Yeah. Let me, uh, let me put this out there, Charlie. Um, I, I have to say that I'm ignorant on one fundamental question that relates to just how important th this is for the political <laughs> side. I do not know. I've not seen any recent polls on how many voters see abortion as a top issue or one of the top few issues nor have I seen any polls that show how many voters consider themselves single issue voters on the topic of abortion. I remember something from decades ago that there was a surprisingly significant number of people who at least claimed that they were single issue voters on that topic. I have not seen anything recently. And yes, it will be a, if you want to call it a culture war issue, fine. It will be an issue that will galvanize opinion and get a lot of attention uh, for some very good reasons. What I don't know is how much that will compare to things like the economy, rule of law, uh, coming to a reckoning over the January 6th events and what led to it. I, I don't have any confidence in my ability to rack and stack those yeah. factors especially when it comes to crucial swing voters. I just don't have a sense of that right now. Yeah, that that that's an interesting point. Um, I, I will say that the, one of the things that I've noticed over the years, though, is that the polls 
do not capture the intensity of the feelings. And even though you may have a minority of voters who say they are strongly, that they are uh, pro-life, it doesn't capture the way that has driven uh, conservative politics over the last several decades and the intensity of it. So, um, Absolutely. And the issue then would be, does that intensity matter? That is, in terms of driving out the base for midterm elections, uh, notoriously, notoriously low in turnout compared to major presidential election years, at least, does but that this could actually work. work enough in districts that matter? And, yep. and that I just don't know. The, the demographic changes and the changes in the salience of that issue, um, I just don't have a lot of confidence in that right now. I'm hoping that whether it's uh, you know good journalists or political scientists do some research on this and, and get us some facts so that we can actually have some more informed speculation about this going forward. Well, and, and, and what we also don't know is, is whether, you know, what the backlash is going to be. I mean, I can tell you right now that, uh, you know, in terms of the rise of, of, of Trump, the, the abortion issue played a much larger role than I think people gave it credit for, because, you know, the argument that I heard even from, you know, really Trump skeptical Republicans was, well, if he names a Supreme Court justice who will overturn Roe v. Wade, and I'm not sure they actually fully, uh, you know, have thought through all of the implications of that, but that was the one issue. Though, If there is a one issue voter, you know, you know, th- this would be the one. On the other hand, um, the polls that I have seen would suggest that there's a huge majority of people in the country um, who uh, w- would be alarmed by the overturning of Roe versus Wade, even though it would not, you know, ban abortion uh, because it would be returned to the states in, in, in effect. So there's certainly a possibility that it would galvanize people on the other side. So this is what we don't know. Um, right. Would it? it some, sometimes the the side that loses is more motivated than the side that wins. Absolutely. You know what I mean? I, Absolutely. I, and and I, I think that women in this country who who begin to fear, who, who think that their reproductive rights are, are at risk, um, are as likely to turn out in massive numbers as the pro-lifers if, in fact, Roe versus Wade is overturned, which, I, by the way, I'm not I'm not certain and I'm, I'm not making that that prediction. OK, so um, more more briefly, I, I have to say that I'm surprised that that I have as strong feelings as I do about this Mario Cuomo book deal, mainly oh, yeah. because mainly because not just because I don't like uh, did I say Mario Cuomo, Andrew Cuomo. <laughs> Uh, not, not only because I'm I don't like Andrew Cuomo um, or have been disillusioned um, by him the way the way he's handled uh, the coronavirus and and other issues, it's just the obscenity of a politician receiving five point one million dollars for his book on his handling of the pandemic. Now this was this deal was given you know, by his national profile during the worst days of the virus before he found out, you know, what a complete joke he was. Um, but his book is American Crisis Leadership Lessons from COVID-19 Pandemic. The book was released in October. So uh, his his communication, this comes from his office. The book contract calls for payments of $3.1 million in the last taxable year, an additional $2 million over the following two years. Now, the reason they're they're disclosing that is because Cuomo released his 2020 tax filings. So, I, you know, look, there's no way that book earned $5.1 million in royalties. No. I mean, that's just obscene. I don't mind a politician writing a book 
and getting the money that he earned from the sales of the book. But these big freaking advances of $5 million, that just strikes me as as just complete grift and graft. I don't understand the economics of that, but yeah. I know that other people do, which is having worked with with publishers on this. They, I mean, they they put other actuaries to shame in the way that that they look at potential sales, probable sales, the value of the sale for other things that the publisher has an interest in, and giving an advance on royalties of that amount um, is not done casually. That's something that they felt that there would be enough bulk sales to particular groups, or enough publicity inherently because of his person that it would drive sales at or near that amount. And even if it were a loss, that it would have tangential benefits to the publisher through some other attention. Um, So I don't know. I I can't imagine the book being a bestseller for a long period of time, if, if for any time at all. But I can tell you the publisher must see something we don't because they're not in the business of losing millions of dollars on something that, well, that doesn't apparently they are. No, see, this is the thing. Is this is what 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 hurts my head because it is clearly irrational. It, it does not make any economic sense. They are going to lose millions of dollars on this. There was no way this Mario Cuomo book was going to earn him five million dollars. I mean, that's you know super mega bestseller type thing, and we're living in an era in which I mean we are just flooded with books about current yeah. events. Very few of them are going to make anything remotely like, and you know, and talk to any author anywhere about what kind of advances are being paid, what book sales are. Think of the, I guess I would like to have the numbers. Think of the the most popular book written in the Trump era. What the what the residual royalties to the author would have been. Trust me, nobody has come close to it. And I'm sorry, a politician writing about the pandemic is. So, so somebody yeah. made a different decision that doesn't make economic sense. Yeah, I don't know what I, it is. I, I got to tell you, I'm less interested in Andrew Cuomo's book than another book uh, that will be coming out. And this is from my friend and I believe a guest on the podcast here, Molly Jong Fast. Oh. Um, it has been announced that she has a North American rights deal at an imprint of Simon & Schuster for her new book, The Last Good Time, which will look at the 1990s. And how that the issues of that decade, both government policies and technology, uh, derailed our nation and set the stage for what we're going through today. And I think based on her unique voice, it's going to be a fascinating read, much more interesting by far than uh, anything Andrew Cuomo. Has oh, to I say. think there's no question about it. It will be a much more interesting read. I mean, on, on any given day. Um, I, I, there are more interesting reasons. I mean, the thing about it is, I mean, I'm sure you've read other books by politicians, mm-hmm. but you know, the thing about a book by a politician is that they're easy to read because you don't need to read the whole thing. You just read the beginning and the end, you know, you sort of like page through them because you know that it's mostly hack stuff and it's mostly written by, you know, communication staffers. Um, and it, the, the, the chances that there will be a memorable image or phrase are, vanishingly small. <laughs> so, yeah. uh, yes. Um, There's also the, the dynamic Charlie lately, and I don't know if this will exist for Cuomo's book, but we, we've seen it dramatically in cases like Don Jr.'s book and others Yes, where you will have large organizations uh, 
tragically, I think, wasting the money of their members who have donated, but large organizations that buy thousands of copies of the book, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of copies of the book, and essentially give it out for donations or put it in a warehouse or recycle them. But to drive the book, to make it look like it's getting more attention than it actually is, maybe there's a Cuomo play like that going on here. I don't know. Okay, isn't isn't that the kind of actual scam that cost former speaker Jim Wright his position? It's Wasn't not this dissimilar, the thing? is it? <laughs> this is this is how we got Newt Gingrich. For people who forget, uh, Newt Gingrich was you know a a, a Republican bomb thrower who figured that he was going to go after um, the speaker, you know, go go after the Democratic speaker of the House at the time, Jim Wright, who had a book that nobody really wanted to read, but which they bought in massive bulk. It was it's a form of money laundering, basically. I mean, think of it that way. It's a way of how do you put money in the you know in in the pockets of certain you know well connected people? Well, you buy their book in bulk or something like that. So that's why I'm looking at the Mario Cuomo. I'm not Mario. I'm so, I keep seeing Mario. I'm dating myself again. The fact that I even remember who Jim Wright is, um, <laughs> Andrew Cuomo. You know, and you know that's why it, it feels like it's so it, it's so crooked. So speaking of dating myself, the thing is, what percentage? of people in the world. I don't mean the hyper-informed people who listen to our podcast, mm-hmm. but but people in the world even remember who Jim Wright is. Well, you know, I nobody remembers Jim Wright. No, it's it's been it's been a while and people who who tracked it, you know, memories memories do fade, but I do recall and and I should have looked this up before I say it, but I do recall there was a really good biography of Jim Wright that came out relatively recently certainly within the last few years and i think i think i saw it when i was down in in austin for the texas tribune festival a couple of years ago before covid shut these things down and it was getting a lot of attention in in texas which makes sense um but i have a feeling that among the the people who track these things not necessarily in terms of day to day but in terms of people who like to read books about our times and the politics and the society that that Jim Wright has a little bit more of a legacy than than you might see. Well, I guess the, I was thinking of it in terms of you know sick transit Gloria Mundi. Um, that that all of these folks in Washington think that they are so famous and so powerful and such a big deal, and the reality is right. that within a few years nobody's going to remember their ass. They're just going to be gone, you know. Um, and it's it's it is it is kind of striking. Um, you you notice this throughout politics that people who think they're really 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 big deals and they and they and they make all of the compromises you know in order to preserve that status which is so important you, you move on a couple of decades and people go who dat really yeah, I mean me, who, who, who remembers any of those people um, you know I would say that even even you and I if we put our heads together we probably couldn't name a majority of the Republican and Democratic whips and conference chairmen of the past thirty years. Um, we it's, might come zero, up with zero, some yeah. that moved no, up to the leadership or did something else dramatic. I can think of a few. But if I had to sit down and do <sighs> the same thing that most people probably can do for at least modern presidents, um, some of us who are political science nerds can do it for presidents, vice presidents, and a lot of other offices. But if you ask me who were the Elise Stefanics of the past 30 years, I can't name all of them. 
Yeah, this is something that Elise Stefanik, uh, one hopes, will discover uh, later in life, but I, I, I'm, not, I'm not totally hopeful about it. Uh, so what else are you looking at, David? What are you thinking about this week? Um, I'm really curious how a couple of things are going to play out. Um, one is Joe Biden has his first um, foreign policy crisis, if you will, if you don't count uh, border surges, um, and that is the Israeli-Palestinian issue. Yes, you could say that Russia putting troops on the Ukrainian border was one as well, but that actually was managed pretty pretty quickly, at least at the time. I don't think it's over yet. Um, but the attention being given to the Israeli-Palestinian flare-up um, is the kind of thing that every president faces uh, at least once, usually in the first year, something that they weren't anticipating and they really wish would just go away. I don't want to get into the details of that. I, you know, your discussion mm -hmm. with Mona yeah. on that was was insightful, but I'll tell you. To me, watching the way Biden is handling it is fascinating because it's very clear he wants nothing to do with it. He's issuing statements that are not dramatically pushing one way or the other. If he really wanted to intervene, he would send his secretary of state or another senior envoy. Instead, I believe he sent the deputy assistant secretary of state, an important position, no doubt, but not somebody who's going to make certainly Netanyahu or anyone on the Palestinian sides um, sit back and stop what they're doing because it re reflects American resolve to uh, end this, this conflict. Um, to me, it's been an exercise in Biden Biden's focus, which we have seen in this administration, trying to stay focused on the big things they want to accomplish. And even with a major flare-up going on in this important region, uh, watching the way that they're trying to not distance themselves from it, but just hope that it all goes away quickly has been fascinating. It is. It has been. David Priest, thank you so much for coming back on the podcast. We always enjoy hearing from you. A thank pleasure you. as always from me too. And thank you all for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow. We'll do this all over again.